when it comes to salvation, we call it the doctrine of election, that God chose us, and therefore we responded, and, and we came to Christ, but he moved first. Sometimes we have a hard time with that, because it does humble us, and it should, because we're dealing with a God who created everything. This week, we will celebrate Thanksgiving. Are you grateful? Are you thankful for all that God has given you? Do you realize or understand all that God has given you? Well, today, we want to continue with our look at a message called Grateful Hearts. Grateful today out of Psalm 33 because in everything, God has made it all. And there we find rest, comfort, and gratefulness. For more, let's catch up with Pastor Steve Converse as we begin today's broadcast of Graceful Truth. I mean, the only alternative to that, you can choose to believe that by faith, the only alternative is that nothing produced everything. Either God produced everything out of nothing, or nothing produced everything, or that matter has always existed. But in some miraculous manner, by sheer chance alone, it came to be intricately ordered and, and, and put together in a way that forms the creation that we look around and, and see today. I mean, I don't know about you, but you ask which view takes more faith? I'm, I'm a lot e- it's a lot easier for me to say, you know what? Yeah, God said he did it. Okay, God, yeah, he, he did it. He just did it. He just spoke it into existence. And the psalmist psalmist then goes on there in verse 7. He says he gathers the waters of the sea together as a heap and he lays them up in deeps deeps in in the storehouses. They tell us the only ocean really that the psalmist probably would have seen was either the Mediterranean Sea or perhaps maybe the the Red Sea or the, the Gulf of Aqaba over there. He wouldn't have known that all the world is covered Two-thirds of the earth is covered by what we call ocean, water. He wouldn't have known that. I mean, think about this. The Pacific Ocean alone, just the Pacific Ocean, you know, right down here off the coast, it covers almost 64 million square miles. 64 million square miles. They tell us it has an average depth of over 14,000 feet. Isn't that amazing? With its greatest depth, almost at 36,000 feet. You know, if you've ever flown or sailed over the Pacific Ocean, (laughs) you know, fly to Hawaii, you get on a plane in San Francisco and you take off and pretty soon you're going like 500 miles an hour. And you think, well, you'll get there pretty quick. And you look out and what do you, you know, if it's the daytime, you look out and you see blue, blue water, if it's clear. And you go back to reading your magazine or watching a movie, whatever you're doing, you look out again, what do you see? You see blue water. And every time you look out for five hours, sometimes six hours, that's all you're seeing. You don't see anything else. You don't see any other land. I told somebody, I said, we're, yeah, we're, we're, we're flying to Hawaii. And they asked me, they go, was it nonstop? Did you get a nonstop flight? I said, I hope so. <laughs> I hope so. I mean, I don't want to stop anywhere between here and Hawaii. There's nowhere to go. 
And I think what they meant was, are, are I got an SFO or do I have to go to LA? But still, I had to clarify it because I thought, wow, okay. It's an interesting question. But it, you know how huge even the Pacific Ocean is. And the psalmist here pictures God as piling up the water together, almost like a farmer would pile up a heap of grain in a barn. That's how powerful God is. Yeah, I'm just going to take all this water and just pile it up. Now, some, some commentators believe that this could be a reference of God stacking up the waters of the Red Sea when he brought Israel safely through it. That definitely could be. Or it could be a, a poetic description, you might say, of God keeping the mighty oceans within their boundaries. I mean, aren't you glad that God keeps the oceans within their boundaries? Think if God just said, you know what, I'm just going to let the water go wherever it wants. <laughs> We'd be in a world of hurt. Either way, when you consider the, the grandeur of the, the heavens and the, the magnificent oceans, the conclusion there in verses 8 and 9, let all the earth fear the Lord. He says, let all the inhabitants of the world, what? Stand in awe before him. For he spoke and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. I don't know how, as a Bible-believing Christian, you could ever harmonize or reconcile this text with the view that the universe and life around us on earth as we know it came about by random chance over billions and billions and billions of years. Nor is there any room in this view that we just read that God somehow got everything started and then, and then guided the process of evolution over billions and billions and billions of years. There's no room for that craziness. Rather, what does it say? It says God spoke it and it was done instantly. Instantly. And the obvious application is that we should fall on our faces before such a powerful creator. You know, I think the church of Christ today has grown a little too friendly <laughs> with their God, in all honesty. You know, the man upstairs, you know, ah, it's covered by God's grace. It's casual, casual worship and just a big party. I mean, we, we should have a little fear in our heart when we come before God in prayer. Not cowering fear, but respectful fear. A fear that realizes, you know what, in one word, we could be a toasty little critter. He could just say, I'm done with you. Your life's over. I mean, who are we to praise ourselves in pride against such a magnificent God, such a, such a God who's blessed us with so much? If you look over at, at 2 Corinthians in the New Testament real quick, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Remember, we're talking about how to cultivate this, this thankful, grateful, worshiping heart that God wants us to have. 2 Corinthians, Corinthians 4, look at, at verse 4. Now, Paul here is talking about the light of the gospel. He's talking about this ministry of, of, of kind of reconciliation that we have and everything. And, and, um, but in, down in verse 4, he talks about how, in their case, that those who... Um, who's having the, the gospel message veiled from their eyes. They, they, they're unbelievers, okay? It says, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. 
Now, when, when, you, when you think about that, he goes on, on to, to say here that he's keeping them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Verse 5, for what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. And then in verse 6, look at what he says. For God who said, what's he talking about here? He's talking about creation. For God who said, let, there, let light shine out of darkness. In other words, let there be light, and there was. What's he say? Let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. What's he saying? What, what is Paul saying here? He's saying, you know what? <clears throat> if you know Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, guess what? It wasn't your doing. It wasn't your doing. Redemption, our salvation, is as much a sovereign work of God, Paul says, as creation. That's the power it took to save us. In fact, Paul uses the analogy of, of, of creation to describe salvation over in, in 2 Corinthians 5.17. Just a couple pages to the right. He says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new what? Creature. New creation. The old things have what? Passed away. Behold, all things have become new. What's he doing? He's using that as an analogy regarding our own salvation. Our salvation is just as much of, the, of a miracle as God's creating everything around us. And so here he also uses the analogy for salvation. And he, he draws it from the creation of the physical world. Light. Let light shine out of darkness. It's the same God who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. When God said, let there be light, and there was light in Genesis, that's exactly what happened. It's that same God who turned on that physical light that shone. He is the same God that turns on the spiritual light. And he does both without using any evolutionary process. <laughs> You know, we were in utter, the Bible describes it as utter spiritual darkness. Lost in our what? Our sin. And you know what? Even more than that, you weren't just lost in your sin. You weren't just in utter spiritual darkness. You loved it. You liked it. You enjoyed it. Look at John chapter 3, verse 19. John chapter 3, verse 19. If you want to understand your condition before you came to Christ... This speaks to it. John 3.19, John writes, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved, what's it say? The darkness <laughs> rather than the light because their works were evil. Why do you think churches have such a hard time in the Bay Area, Bible-believing churches, churches that are standing up for Christ and preaching truth and, and repentance from sin and, and, and salvation in Christ? Why do you think they're, they're, they're having a difficult time? Because we live in a very dark area. They call this peninsula the dark, dark corridor. The reason they call it the dark corridor on the peninsula is because less than 3%, less than 3% of the population go to any house of worship, any that includes all the cults, that includes the Catholics, that includes the Protestants. And if you think that statistic's wrong, I don't want to say don't come to church on Sunday, but if you had the opportunity to go around your neighborhood on a Sunday morning, you'll see it in living color. There's a lot of people doing a lot of things and they're not going to church. <laughs> Why? Because they don't have time for that. They don't have time for it. 
Verse 20, it says, For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. You know, as a chaplain, I always wanted, when I was doing more ride-alongs, I would always want to go on ride-alongs at night. Why? Because at night is when the bad stuff happens. <laughs> bad things happen at night. And the reason they do is because the light would expose their, the darkness of, of their deeds. Anybody who's been involved in any kind of bad behavior in your past, you would know things happen at night. <laughs> and if you're trying to avoid that, don't go out at night. Verse 21 But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. See, just as God spoke the sun into existence, even so God spoke light and life into our dark, dead hearts. He had to. We'd have no hope otherwise. Now you may be sitting here tonight, well, wait a minute, didn't didn't I... Didn't I choose to believe in Christ? Of course you did. You bet you did. But the question is simply this. How were you able to choose to believe in Christ? The Bible is very clear. If you have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior and your Lord, it's because who went first? God opened your eyes. God first opened your eyes. He opened your blind eyes and you could see your need of a Savior. That's the only doctrine of salvation that causes us to humble ourselves in awe before our Creator. Every other doctrine of salvation that says, no, 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 I think it's up to you. You choose. And you, the reason you're in heaven is because you found God. How, how can I find God when I'm not even seeking for God? The Bible says what? How many, how many people seek for God? None. None. I mean, he doesn't stutter. You know, you don't have to know the Hebrew or the Greek. It's, it's pretty plain. None. Zero. But you know what? Our, our human hearts, our human race is filled. It's prone to pride. And so when you come to the, the pride-crushing doctrine of, when it comes to salvation, we call it the doctrine of election, that God chose us, and therefore we responded, and, and we came to Christ, but he moved first. Sometimes we have a hard time with that because it does humble us. And it should because we're dealing with a God who created everything. I mean, what have you created out of it? Nothing. I mean, have you ever created anything out of nothing? I don't think anybody in this room has ever created something out of nothing. I mean, we band ourselves together as nations in this world and we assemble our powerful armies and we think that we're going to conquer all these kingdoms and control our destinies and all this stuff. But we see the power of God's word is seen as his, in his creation. Secondly, in verses 10 to 12, we see the power of God's word that it's seen in his counsel. It says in verse 10, the Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. <laughs> They're nothing. He frustrates the plans of the people. The counsel of the Lord stands forever, on the other hand, and the plans of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. I mean, just contrast the words there with the, the proud words you've probably heard. Um, this, this one poem that has this phrase in it by Henley. It says, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. You heard that phrase? Well, guess what? God answers to that and he says, no, you're not. No, you're not. Sorry. I already got dibs on that one. I read a story of a younger 
politician who just got elected and he was in Washington, D.C. And, and the older politician was taking him over to his house and he owned this beautiful spread out on the Potomac River and he thought he could shed some light in this young senator's life. And so they were down standing on the shore of the Potomac River and the older senator saw this log, pretty good-sized log floating down the Potomac just lazily. He, he turned to his younger senator friend and he said, you know what? This city, Washington, D.C., is kind of like that log. And the younger senator said, what, what do you mean? What are you talking about? He says, I, I guarantee you on that log there's hundreds of bugs and ants and other critters that have been sitting on that log. And as it's floating down the river, they actually think that they're controlling where this log is going. They're steering it. That's what this city's like. See, a proud man thinks that he is steering the, what, the, the course of history. But the Bible is very clear. The Bible says, who sets up leaders and who brings them down? God. God alone. He sets up the most powerful kings in history. And he uses them for his own sovereign purposes. And when he's done with them, he brings them down. Whether it was Pharaoh, Nebuchadnezzar, Cyrus, Artaxerxes, all those. God used each of those men for his purposes. For his chosen people. And yet none of those men knew God. None of those men were seeking to follow God, but God used them for his purposes. It's very relevant, I would say, to our modern-day political environment, right? But the important thing is, is that God had a plan. These men thought that they were making decisions that they thought would further their own agendas, these men in the Bible. But behind the scenes, what did God do? God providentially used their decisions to further his own agenda. And they didn't even realize it. They were responsible for their own decisions. They were making decisions on their own. And they will answer to God for those decisions one day. And yet God somehow in his sovereign power used those decisions to implement his own counsel and his own plans. You see it really illustrated probably in the most important event in human history, do you not? The crucifixion of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. You see it very clearly. I mean, this was the enemy. This was Satan's and, 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 and the pride of man's most serious attempt, really, to cast off God's lordship, his, his rule. They wanted to do away with him. In Acts chapter 2, verse 22, it says, Men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourself know, he says, by the way, in other words, you've seen this firsthand. You can't deny the power that Christ had in front of you. Verse 23, Acts 2, he says, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Wow. But then, comma, wait for it. He says, you crucified and you killed by the hands of lawless men. See, sometimes we don't completely understand God's sovereignty and human will. We don't quite get how they come together. But they do. They do. In Acts chapter 4, verse 27 to 28, the early church is praying. They say, For truly in this city they were gathered against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod, Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles, and the people of Israel. What's he saying? Basically, everybody was against Jesus. Everybody, even the people of Israel. 
But then it says this, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. Once again, the sovereign hand of God was involved. See, these self-centered, prideful rulers were responsible for crucifying the Lord's anointed one, the Messiah. They were responsible for it. And yet, in doing so, they inadvertently, un they didn't even know they were doing it, they carried out God's eternal plan for redemption. <laughs> gotcha. God nullified. He, he frustrated their plans, the Bible says. And what did he do? He established his plan. See, the power of, of God's word as seen in his counsel, it's further stated back to uh, Psalm 33 and verse 12. It says, blessed is the nation whose God is what? The Lord. And the people whom he has chosen for his own inheritance. That refers to Israel, by the way. Whom God chose as a distinct nation from all other peoples on the earth. In Deuteronomy, we're told this in, in chapter 7, verses 7 and 8. It was not because... You were more in number, he says, than any of the other people that the Lord has set his love on you and chose you. For you are the fewest of all people. God's saying, hey, it didn't make any sense to you that I chose you. Verse 8, but it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out of a might, with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. See, although Israel was disobedient, although they were rebellious, right? We've just, we had a ton of that in Judges, right? Every week I was saying, yeah, the, what? There was no king in Israel and people did what was right in their own eyes. And you just kept on repeating this cycle of sinfulness, judgment, repentance. God would raise up a judge, deliverance. They'd go back. Okay, now we're on, back on with the Lord. And the same thing over and over and over again. And before we're too critical on them, it happens in our own lives as well. But even though they were disobedient, even though they were rebellious, he used them. He used Israel to what? To bring salvation for us, for the world, to bring a savior into the world. And in Romans 11, it says that God has kind of set Israel aside because they did crucify the savior. And yet, Graciously, he will bring widespread revival to the Jewish people, to his praise and glory, by the way. We don't believe the theology that talks about replacement theology, which teaches basically that today, because the church exists, Israel doesn't. So it's in, it's, Israel's irrelevant. The church has replaced Israel. That's what replacement theology teaches. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches when God makes a promise, he is true to that promise. And he promises that one day he will bring revival to Israel. And they're in, in right, up, right to the end of the book. They're there. So, you know, it, it's going to be true. But we as the church now, we're, we're kind of the focus because Israel didn't do what they were supposed to do with the word of God. And so he kind of set them aside and gave them a time out. And now he's focusing on the church. And in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, it calls us a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. So we fall under that, that umbrella of God's sovereign choice of us. And the reason that any of us are, are a part of God's people is because he chose us to be. We couldn't have figured this out on our own. 
So we rely completely on the Lord when we see the power of His Word as seen in creation and the counsel or His, His sovereign plan. Well, thank you for spending time with us here today on Graceful Truth, the ministry of Grace Bible Church here in Redwood City. It's our prayer here at Graceful Truth that God would reveal His grace to your hearts through the teaching of His Word each week. And we trust you're currently involved in a Bible teaching church in your area. If not, we'd love to have you come and visit us here at Grace Bible Church in Redwood City. We meet each Sunday morning for our praise and worship service at 10 a.m. We offer nursery care and Sunday school classes for our children up to grade five. And if you would like to encourage us here at Graceful Truth, please give us a call at Grace Bible Church here in Redwood City. Our phone number is 650-366-9923. That's 650-366-9923. We meet at 2225 Euclid Avenue here in Redwood City. Directions are on our website, gracefultruth.org, or again, simply call 650-366-9923. That's 650-366-9923. And again, we'd love to have you join us for worship. Simply call for directions or go to our website, gracefultruth.org. While you're at our website, make sure to check out the resource materials available from us here at Graceful Truth, including past programs of Graceful Truth that you can download for free. Gracefultruth.org is where to go. If you're writing to us, our address is 2225 Euclid Avenue. That's 2225 Euclid Avenue. We're here in Redwood City. The zip code is 94061. And again, our phone number is 650-366-9923. That's 650-366-9923. We thank you for spending time with us today and trust we'll see you next week at this same time for another broadcast of Graceful Truth with Pastor Steve Converse. Graceful Truth is the ministry of Grace Bible Church in Redwood City.